welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. President Biden and other world leaders descend on the United Nations for the annual General Assembly meeting. Focus areas include COVID-19, the environmental crisis, and the growing income inequality worldwide. What thus far has emerged from presentations from heads of state? Our guest is Dr. Gerald Horn. And the Democrats' economic agenda is hanging by a thread in Congress as there is pushback against the cost of President Biden's care economy proposals. And the Republicans threaten not to lift the debt ceiling, therefore threatening the entire uh, Biden uh, proposal. What's going on? We get an update from economist Max Wolf. And who is not getting the $600 California stimulus check? We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. President Biden is set to announce that the U.S. will purchase a half billion doses of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccines to share with the world. Biden is also set to embrace a goal of vaccinating 70 percent of the global population within the next year. He's expected to make the commitments at a global virtual vaccination summit that he's convening today on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly. Biden will push wealthy nations to do more to get the coronavirus under control around the world. Former President Trump on Tuesday sued his estranged niece and the New York Times over a bombshell 2018 story about his family's wealth and tax practices that was based on confidential documents she provided to the newspaper's reporters. Trump's lawsuit filed in state court in New York accuses Mary Trump of breaching a settlement agreement by disclosing tax records she received in a dispute over family patriarch Fred Trump's estate. In a statement, Mary Trump called her uncle a loser who's filing the suit out of desperation. A Times spokesperson said the lawsuit is an attempt to silence independent news organizations and that the paper plans to defend against it vigorously. The House has approved legislation to fund the government and to suspend the nation's debt limit and provide federal disaster and refugee aid. Republicans in the Senate are expected to block the measure, however, as Congress works to avoid a federal shutdown at the end of the fiscal year on September 30th. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky told reporters he's against the Democratic spending plan and won't back raising the debt ceiling. This one is not being negotiated on a bipartisan basis because obviously we're not involved in any bipartisan discussion regarding the reckless taxing and spending. Democrats say they're raising the debt ceiling to allow the country to pay its debts. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer spoke recently on the Senate floor. Should Republicans careen our country towards a default, our country could actually be plunged into recession, laying off millions, making it harder for people to pay pay for the food on the table and their mortgages and their rents. The measure includes $28.6 billion in disaster relief and $6.3 billion to support Afghanistan evacuees. 
U.S. officials say many Haitian migrants camped in a small Texas border town are being released in the U.S. That contradicts the Biden administration's public statements that the thousands in the camp faced immediate expulsion. Officials said many have been released with notices to appear at an immigration office within 60 days, an outcome that requires less processing time from Border Patrol agents and ordering an appearance in immigration court, and points to the speed at which authorities are moving. The Homeland Security Department has been busing Haitians from Del Rio, Texas, to El Paso, Laredo, and the Rio Grande Valley along the Texas border, and this week added flights to Tucson, Arizona. They are also processed by the Border Patrol at those locations. The releases in the U.S. were occurring despite the signaling of a massive effort to expel Haitians on flights to Haiti under pandemic-related authority that denies migrants an opportunity to seek asylum. Chinese Premier Xi Jinping said Tuesday that China will not build new coal-fired power projects abroad during his address at the United Nations General Assembly Tuesday. It was part of the country's pledge to deal with climate change. More from FSN's Rachel Silverman. Chinese leader did not say when, but he did tell the United Nations General Assembly China will end the flow of cash to foreign coal projects. Currently, more than 70% of global coal-fired power plants rely on Chinese funding. She also said China will step up support to develop green and low-carbon energy. This comes on the heels of similar pledges by Japan and South Korea earlier this year, and it comes ahead of the global climate talks scheduled for this November in Scotland. And that report from FSN's Rachel Silverman. And I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. On Tuesday, September 21st, the 76th session of the United Nations General Assembly kicked off in New York City, culminating with the first day of the high-level general debate. Last year in 2020, no world leaders came to the United Nations amid the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Back then, addresses from leaders were pre-recorded and only a handful of resident ambassadors spoke. This year, in contrast, more than 100 world leaders decided to appear in person at the General Assembly Hall discussing pressing issues such as COVID-19, the threat of renewed war, income inequality. The ongoing climate crisis seemed to be top of the list given the urgent state of the environment. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has warned that life on Earth is in extreme danger if we do not achieve, quote, rapid, far-reaching, and unprecedented changes in all aspects of society, end of quote, by 2030. And at least 11% of the world's population is currently in extreme vulnerability because of climate change impacts such as droughts, floods, heat waves, extreme weather events, and sea level rise. During Tuesday's uh, general debate at the UN, the three most closely followed speakers were U.S. President Joe Biden, who appeared at the General Assembly for the first time since taking office, and Chinese President Xi Jinping, who delivered a video address, and Iran's recently elected uh, president. Let us go to a clip now um, about the UN General Assembly, where we will hear the warning from 
the Antonio Gutierrez, the Secretary General of the UN, and President Biden. The world must wake up. We are on the edge of an abyss and moving in the wrong direction. A majority of the wealthier world vaccinated. Over 90% of Africans still waiting for the first dose. This is a moral indictment of the state of our world. It is an obscenity. We passed the science test, but we are getting an F in ethics. Excellencies, the quiet alarm bells are also ringing at fever pitch. The recent report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was a code red for humanity. We see the warning signs in every continent and region. Scorching temperatures, shocking biodiversity loss, polluted air, water, and natural spaces, and climate-related disasters at every turn. As we saw recently, not even this city, the financial capital of the world, is immune. Climate scientists tell us it is not too late to keep alive the 1.5 degree goal of the Paris Climate Agreement. But the window is rapidly closing. A sense of impunity is taking hold. And at the same time, it will be impossible to address dramatic economic and developed challenges while the world's two largest economies are at odds with each other. Yet I fear our world is creeping towards two different sets of economic, trade, financial, and technological rules two divergent approaches in the development of artificial intelligence, and ultimately, the risk of two different military and geopolitical strategies. And this is a recipe for trouble. The United States will double our public international financing to help developing nations tackle the climate crisis. And today, I'm proud to announce that we'll work with the Congress to double that number again, including for adaptation efforts. This will make the United States a leader in public climate finance. And with our added support, together with increased private capital and other, from other donors, we'll be able to meet the goal of mobilizing $100 billion to support climate action in developing nations. The United States will compete, and will compete vigorously, and lead with our values and our strength. We'll stand up for our allies and our friends and oppose attempts by stronger countries to dominate weaker ones, whether through changes to territory by force, economic coercion, technical exploitation, or disinformation. <clears throat> but we're not seeking, say it again, we are not seeking a new Cold War or a world divided into rigid blocks. The United States is ready to work with any nation that steps up and pursues peaceful resolution we all suffer the consequences of our failure to address the urgent threats like COVID-19 and climate change or enduring threats like nuclear proliferation. All righty, there you go. And uh, President Biden has been heavily criticized due to the chaotic exit from Afghanistan and fallout from a submarine deal the U.S. brokered with Australia and the U.K., which has caused a rift with France. 
And during um, President Xi's of China's speech, he made a groundbreaking commitment, as you just heard in the clip, on behalf of the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases. In his pre-recorded speech, President Xi promised that China will not construct any new coal-fired power projects abroad. The Chinese government also announced that it will boost financial support for green and low carbon energy projects in other developing countries. Meanwhile, the president of Iran slammed U.S. sanctions imposed on his country as a mechanism of war. He pointed out that the U.S. sanctions have made international purchases of medicine and equipment much more difficult at a time when multiple waves of COVID-19 have already uh, taken 118,000 deaths in Iran, one of the highest in the region. Here to give us his thoughts and what jumped out at him and the broader implications, some analysis on all of this, I'd like to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, Dr. Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. Dr. Horn, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Right, and of course, uh, Dr. Horn has won the American Book Award for his book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Uh, so, Dr. Horn, there you have, um, some people are saying, uh, President Biden in some quicksand, um, having a very, very rough uh, couple of weeks as he... Uh, went to the United Nations. And by the way, there was no reference in his speech, Dr. Horn, to the crisis happening with Haitians at the border. Before we get into um, actually what happened at the UN General Assembly, I'm wondering your thoughts on that, uh, what's happening at the border, because some of the photos that have emerged of uh, border agents on horseback whipping Haitians, whipping uh, black men and uh, going after women and children, reminiscent of an earlier period in U.S. history. Dr. Horn, before we discuss the U.N., just a, a quick comment on that. Well, the scenes from Del Rio, Texas, south of where I'm sitting, were horrific and awful. It's a terrible indictment of the Department of Homeland Security and ultimately the Biden administration. Uh, keep in mind as well that according to NBC News, there are about 20,000 Haitians in Colombia on the northern coast of South America heading northward, 3,000 further south in Peru, and about 1,500 in Panama heading northward. So this crisis has yet to abate, and I think it's understandable why these Haitian migrants felt that a door would be open for them in the United States of America. After all, Mr. Biden has said that he's heavily dependent upon the black constituency, and so I'm sure these black people thought that they would receive a warm welcome instead of scenes from 1821 of white presenting men on horseback uh, whipping black men, women, and children. Absolutely. So, Dr. Horn, um, the UN General Assembly gathering of world leaders, uh, 100 turned up this year. Um, of course, um, the president of Brazil didn't get vaccinated. That was one of the requirements uh, for entering the UN building, but it was, a, it was on an honor system. He didn't have to show his vaccine card. But nevertheless, it started out with uh, the UN Secretary General giving a very stark warning uh, 
uh, to the world. And then uh, President Biden uh, trying to uh, perhaps make an attempt to heal some of uh, the weaknesses that people have seen. I mean, the EU not too happy um, with him right now. And of course, the messy withdrawal from Afghanistan and much more. What jumped out at you, Dr. Horn? What jumped out at me, in a sense, was what didn't jump out at me. That is to say, okay. <laughs> conspicuous omission of the elephant in the room, uh, which is the relationship with France. You articulated why there has been a rupture, that is to say the United States big-footing France and pushing it and elbowing it out of the way to see the submarine deal with Australia. France has withdrawn its ambassador from the United States, which is one step short of breaking diplomatic relations altogether. Sadly and unfortunately, the U.S. press, particularly the New York Times, has downplayed the profundity of this, of this uh, relationship and the, the rupture, suggesting that France uh, is ineffectual and has nowhere to go. But I hope they read the Financial Times of London this morning and read, and read about the postponement, if not the cancellation, of an important summit between the European Union and the United States on trade and technology that would take place shortly in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, as noted, now canceled, that was seen as a step towards uniting the United States and the European Union to confront the People's Republic of China. I also think that it's fair to say that the investment and trade deal between the EU and China uh, that was temporarily postponed at the behest of the Biden administration at the end of 2020 will probably be revived. And I also suspect that the revelations, the bombshell revelations in the Bob Woodward, Robert Costa book, Peril, about the waning days of the Trump administration, which spoke in some detail about a possible U.S. military strike on the People's Republic of China, initiated by Donald J. Trump, has unnerved the European Union because they do not want to get in the middle of a nuclear war between economy number one and economy number two. And keep in mind as well that Germany, which is uh, France's uh, close comrade in the EU, has a lot to lose with regard to a rupture uh, with the People's Republic of China, which is likely uh, China's largest trading partner. I understand that China has more trade deals with, uh, with Germany than it does with the United States. Chancellor Merkel, outgoing in a few days, has made 12 visits to China during her 15 years in office. And I think as well that from the EU point of view, it might be easier to play number two to China as number one than to play number two to the United States as number one, since the United States fundamentally dis uh, demands that its so-called allies should be vassal. And given the fact that the term chauvinism was invented in France, I don't think that France wants to be a vassal of the United States of America. And one more point, uh, this rupture might also have implications for the black liberation movement. Recall that during the years of French leader Charles de Gaulle and shortly thereafter, you have uh, black skyjackers and black Panther Party leaders who were facing long prison terms in the United States. They were not extradited from France. Still, some are still living in France. And so there are many implications of this rupture between Paris and the United States. It's fair to suggest that Cold War II might have uh, reached 
uh, an impasse just as it's being launched. Yeah, and I mean, France uh, is also has also lost a lot of money uh, uh, with this deal with the U.S., Australia, and the U.K. Um, at least $50 billion, it seems. CNN is saying $65 billion. Business Insider is saying $50 billion. And uh, as you had mentioned in our roundtable uh, last week, that uh, there's also good, an upcoming election. So Macron has to be seen as being very strong dealing with all of this. But it, it does seem, though, as though that deal does indicate of a, a long-awaited pivot in a way from of the United States and away from Europe or old Europe and uh, towards the Pacific region with all eyes on China. And here was China, because we'll be talking about the, the climate uh, next of uh, Xi Jinping, really in terms of what he's doing on the ground in China and uh, trying to hark back to some of the, the, the concepts and principles under uh, Mao Zedong right after the, the revolution there in China, but also announcing what some see as a historic announcement that they will no longer fund coal-powered plants um, in places around the world, although, of course, China is still very, very heavily dependent on coal. Dr. Horn. Well, with regard to China, the new slogan coming out of Beijing is, quote, common prosperity, unquote. Apparently, that suggests uh, more redistribution, redistribution of the wealth from top to bottom, a better health care system, et cetera. Uh, corporations in China and private interests in China have been uh, encouraged, if not coerced, to fork over billions of dollars to state coffers to that end. And as a result, you see this Cold War mentality deepening in the United States. You see it in recent op-ed pieces by George Soros, the U.S. billionaire who's oftentimes demonized by Fox News, has taken a harsh line towards China lately, which mirrors, I'm afraid to say, the line of Donald J. Trump. Uh, with regard to France, once again, recall that President Macron some months ago suggested that the North Atlantic Treaty Organization led by the United States was, quote, brain dead, unquote. Recall that for decades, France had pulled out of the military wing of NATO. I dare say that it may choose to do so again. It reentered in 2009. That has good news and bad news aspects. The good news is that it will likely weaken NATO. The bad news is that an independent military force uh, embedded in the European Union uh, may lead and portend conflict on the military level, I'm afraid to say, uh, with the United States of America, but more likely a more intensified European intervention in the internal affairs of African states. Yes, and, and on the question of, of climate, we heard uh, China's big announcement and President Biden's big announcement on climate is, I think it was something like $11 billion, checking the, the number right now, uh, to assist countries in the global south to deal with the environmental catastrophe that they are facing. Now, this pales, given that the United States is uh, one of the world's largest uh, polluter, the U.S. military being the world's biggest uh, polluter, 
And yes, it is $11 billion in climate aid annually by 2024. This is a figure according to Politico. But the assessment by the UN and other agencies is given the size of the United States, the wealth of the United States, and how much the United States pollutes, that the US should be um, contributing at least $41 billion, right? So his big announcement uh, pales by what's uh, really needed. Uh, Dr. Horn, your um, final thoughts here on that point and uh, just anything that you might have to uh, add about the General Assembly meetings, Dr. Horn. Well, certainly that $11 billion is a virtual insult to stump change. And even with that, we have, we have to read the details because we have to see if this is going to be a typical U.S. deal where the $11 billion is basically poured into U.S. contractors' pockets. In any case, I agree with the indigenous forces who say that if Mr. Biden is sincere about climate change, he needs to stop what they call the Trump pipeline, which invade indigenous territory in North America. And certainly, uh, one more point, the announcement that's going to be made later today about COVID, uh, obviously, there is a severe imbalance that is challenging the health of all humanity insofar as the richer countries uh, 50% of their adult population has been has received at least one jab, and Africa is uh, 4%. And in any case, there are 26 people who die every hour uh, in Africa as we speak as a result of COVID, so there's going to have to be more done there. And finally, I think that uh, the photographs that I'd like to see coming out of this General Assembly meeting is President Bolsonaro of Brazil being forced to buy a slice of pizza on the street because he would not be allowed into Manhattan restaurants because he has no proof of vaccination. <laughs> right. Dr. Horn, I'm sorry. There is one, another thing. Finally, finally, uh, President Biden made a big deal about um, endless wars and shifting away from endless wars and, and leaning heavily on diplomacy around world peace. Um, activists are pointing out that while there are approximately half as many U.S. military bases as during at the Cold War end, that the U.S. bases have spread to twice as many uh, countries and colonies from 40 to 80, right? So um, what does that tell us um, about uh, U.S. military might, and then of course there's the deal with Australia, and the other thing is is Iran because the Iran's new president really slammed uh, the U.S. at the U.N. Uh, just quick thoughts from you, uh, Dr. Horn, on on both those points. Well, if Mr. Biden is really sincere about relentless diplomacy, replacing relentless war, he may want to dismantle AFRICOM, the Africa Command which interferes shamelessly in the internal affairs of African states. And likewise, as President Raisi of Iran suggested in his tape remarks, this sanctions regime that has been intended to strangle Iran, strangle Cuba, strangle Syria, strangle Zimbabwe, it is the practical equivalent of war and certainly needs to be resolved. Right. On that note, thank you, uh, Dr. Horn. We'll, by Friday, for our weekly roundtable, we hope you will be joining us by, because by then we certainly will know a lot more of what came out of the 2021 UN General Assembly meetings. Thank you, Dr. Horn. Thank you.
All righty. We're going to take our station break now. And when we return, economist Max Wolf uh, joins us breaking down all of the economic issues, the what's going on with taxes, is the Republican uh, cry of inflation to stop uh, President Biden's Build Back Better um, plan, uh, something that really is of a key concern, or is it just a political move? That and much more with economist uh, Max Wolf. And then stimulus checks of $600 for California resident, but who's being left out? Um, Sherelle Withers, who formerly oh, was with the Sojourner Truth team, vol a volunteer with the Sojourner Truth team, she now has a petition that she has initiated around this and will be joining us. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I could listen to Fela Kuti all day long. That is his beast of no nation. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at www.sotrueradio.com. O-R-G. And also, if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook and uh, our handle on Twitter and Instagram at So True Radio. And we are also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Singapore. We, uh, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're now going to go to our weekly Earth Minute. And coming up, economist Max Wolf. A new company has received $15 million in private funding to recreate the woolly mammoth through genetic engineering. The scientists behind the initiative claim their work could help reverse the effects of climate change and advance genetic engineering. The company, called Colossal, will support the research of Dr. George Church, a biologist at Harvard Medical School who aims to bring thousands of woolly mammoth-like creatures back to Siberia in order to transform the melting tundra into a grassland. According to the New York Times, the scientists will try to make an elephant embryo with its genome modified to resemble an ancient mammoth. To do this, the scientists will need to remove DNA from an elephant egg and replace it with the mammoth-like DNA. Instead of focusing on proven solutions to the climate crisis, like huge cuts to fossil fuel emissions, this is another experiment to promote new, extreme, and questionably ethical technologies as false solutions to climate change. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Teresa Church from Global Justice Ecology Project. All righty. And the stakes are high in the ongoing debate over the future of U.S. domestic policy, more specifically funding what some have described as the largest social program proposed since FDR's New Deal. Central to this is the debate over the Build Back Better Act, a $3.5 trillion deal that is still making its way through Congress. U.S. President Joe Biden has said the U.S. is at an inflection point and that this investment 
enforcement is needed now. But conservative Democrats like Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, want they, he wants to cut the proposed uh, figure for the Build Back Better Act in half actually less than half. However, progressive Democrats like Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont have expressed opposition to this, pointing out that there's a desperate need for poverty alleviation and infrastructure development throughout the country. And furthermore, there is another battle. The debt ceiling battle on Capitol Hill is being waged with Senate GOP leaders doubling down on their opposition to raising or suspending the debt limit. On Tuesday, September 21st, House Democrats unveiled a bill to suspend the debt limit until after the 2022 midterm elections. While the measure is expected to pass the House, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is pressing his caucus to vote down the measure when it comes to the upper chamber. Let's go to a short clip now from uh, CNN uh, related to funding uh, Biden's, what he's calling his care economy proposal. Facing Democratic opposition at home and blowback from allies abroad, President Biden departing the White House today as he grapples with one of the most consequential weeks of his first year in office. I think the president's view, having been on the world scene for 50 years, is that you always have to work on your relationships. Back in Washington, his legislative agenda hangs in the balance. Right now, what we are doing is we are engaging with the House and the Senate. It is a complicated proposal. With no agreement on a path forward between moderates and progressives, imperiling his $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill and his $3.5 trillion expansion of the social safety net. Biden set to ramp up his push to bridge the gap with meetings and calls this week, officials say. I think we'll get there. Uh, it's going to take some work, and we are going to do the work. But the White House also grappling with a looming government shutdown and the threat of a catastrophic U.S. default. All righty. So let us welcome our guest. We're delighted to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, Max Wolf, who is a founding partner of Multivariate, which provides capital markets access and data science solutions to growth companies and institutional investors. He's also a professor at the School uh, University Milano graduate program. I think that's a new school, University Milano graduate program. He appears regularly on Reuters, on CNBC, CNN, uh, BBC, NPR, Bloomberg, um, the Wall Street Journal, and the, the Financial Times, among other outlets. So, Max Wolf, welcome back. It's been way, way too long. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, honor to be with you this morning. So, uh, Max Wolf, a lot of action in Washington, D.C., so much pending um, with, uh, for the Democrats in terms of the midterm elections, but also uh, President Biden's entire uh, program. But more than that, a lot of the what's being proposed in this Build Back Better deal, as we said, um, people are saying are contrasting it with FDR's New Deal, but Republicans are saying not so fast. This is way too much money for spending, and uh, Manchin, Senator Manchin, wants half of that, and they're holding up inflation as one of the reasons that this should not happen. Uh, Max Wolf, your assessment of, of this. Yeah, so I think uh, that we should table set this a few ways. When 
people want to oppose whatever someone else is doing, Democrats or Republicans, they get this sudden religion about budget deficits. When they're in office, they seem to forget this, right? So last year and the previous year, the Trump administration, with the full support of Republicans who had no such fears, ran the largest structural budget deficits ever run on any basis by any country in the history of the world. And they probably were right to do so in the depth of the pain and suffering and dislocation and economic damage done by the early waves of Corona, right? So it's not so much by way of critique, but by way of fact. So these people have all just freshly voted for larger spending bills, creating larger deficits with no fear and no discussion of inflation and no hesitation last year. So when they then say that their only goal in life is to stop this president's budget and bring up inflation, it's not interesting. It's, it's not an interesting factual argument terribly. It's a little bit like when you have one person in the room, they're five years old, the lamp is broken, and they tell you it wasn't them. You kind of expect that. It doesn't mean they're a bad kid, but it's not a terribly interesting factual statement about what likely happened to the lamp. Right? So... I would almost think it's not worth the time of your good show and your great guests and in their morning commutes and preparations to deeply debate the validity of something that's thrown out there, just kind of see if it sticks. So there are some reasons to be worried about inflation. We've had recently pretty high numbers, about 5%, which is much above the comfort zone of about 2 to 3%. That being said, our numbers that we're getting, the macro numbers, when we like them and when we don't, are largely hard to understand. They may be meaningless, and they seem kind of temporary because everything is so uncertain, so unsettled, so hard to process because we're in somewhere in a hyped and partial recovery from a catastrophic decline associated with the coronavirus. And as much as many, especially seemingly in the Republican Party, constantly want to announce the end of the COVID period because they've so horribly and fatally mismanaged it, you know, since we've lost 700,000, at least of our armed fellow citizens now, there's an anxiousness for all parties for good reasons to, be, to have this be over. It's traumatic. And there's a particular anxiousness in the Republican Party that wants to move on to other challenges, issues, and conversations because these have not been good for that party. That being said, our haste to pretend this is over has led to tens or hundreds of thousands of needless deaths and to these surreal debates in which we discover what we do now that we're going back to normal and COVID is over. Why do I bring that up? We're not going back to normal. We will never be what we would have been without COVID. It's too big, it lasted too long, it changed things too much. So I think that's a folly as an undertaking to, to, to try to figure that out. One, two, this is very much not over. I sincerely believe it's quite likely and certainly want to be hopeful that the worst is behind us, but that remains up to us, right? We don't know what variants and responses and masks and mandates and prevention of masks and prevention of mandates mean. We don't know what happens to our children, if they can get vaccines, how they respond. We don't know how long the vaccines that we have protect us or if they, how many of us who have not yet gotten the vaccine will get one of the ones that are available now or some variant version in the future. So unfortunately, the COVID era is today, right? And the end of COVID is exciting and anticipated and hoped for very much, 
by all of us, I think, but we're not there yet. So I think the economic discussion has to take place, and we're, we're still in a period of ongoing crisis where we have extremely limited visibility of what's coming next. But more than that, we don't know how to benchmark this because we haven't lived through anything all that much like this, maybe since the Spanish flu, right, which was, you know, 103 years ago. We don't really have that similar of, of an economy or that similar of a country to where we were 103 years ago. So it's, it's, it's got some use, but it's got some limitations in how useful it is for benchmarking. In short, we're not going back to what we were like before. We're not sure when the end of what we're in comes. We know it's unusual, right? So then it becomes a question of priorities. We're going to run large budget deficits, probably not as large as we ran last year when these people all voted for it without hesitation, but we're going to run large budgets, especially when you run a large budget and the federal government is a large portion of the economy, which it needs to be and is right now. You get ideological battles because the budget becomes a statement of national priorities. And the Biden administration has a statement of national priority that says we're going to ask for a little more from relatively more successful companies and more successful households in terms of more taxes. And we're going to try to do more for the folks, in many cases, who were struggling way before COVID and were hit very hard by COVID as well. That's low-income communities, communities of color, single mothers, uh, you know, people on the wrong side of various racial and inequality divides, trying to get health care, trying to get into a home, trying to be a homeowner, trying to get across the digital divide so that their children can do remote education and they can do remote shopping, et cetera, et cetera. Because I think, and I'll steal the line from, from someone else, it's not mine, COVID turned out to be a good snitch. COVID turned out to sort of tell the stories about American suffering and vulnerability that folks like you have been talking about for a long time on your show, but that it hasn't really come out into the light. Right. And uh, thank you for that, Maxwell, for really good uh, summary there. Uh, a couple of things. One, you know, this fight that's going on now about the debt ceiling and just helping our listeners to even understand what that is. But what are the implications if it is not lifted as Republicans are threatening uh, to make sure that it isn't lifted? Uh, Maxwell. Sure. So the House, right, so there's two bodies here that the House has already passed a debt ceiling to raise the debt ceiling. So it's now up to the Senate, which has been, you know, less interested in helping here, to say the least, and is kind of evenly divided, whereas the House still has a small Democratic majority. Um, so the debt ceiling is that there's a statutory limit at how money, how many dollars in debt the U.S. government can be, right? So historically, there are these rules that say, okay, if you want to go more into debt than this, and it's been a, a moving goalpost, right? If you want to go more into debt than this, um, you need a congressional congressional act to go above it, right? And we've marched this up repeatedly, right? So I think right now it's about 29. Uh, I, I forgot the exact number. I can look it up, but it, it, it's it's I think the 20 something time we've raised this, right? And so yeah. for for a long time we just raised it. It was a procedural thing. We exceeded the maximum tens of trillions of dollars of debt, and we just made a, a quiet vote in Congress and the debt ceiling was lifted. I don't know how many times, 20 some, I think it was 29, but I'm not certain. 
And then it became political. Then it became something you could hold the other folks hostage with and get them. If you're in the opposing party in the House and Senate, you could force the other side to make some compromises pretending to care about debt. We saw this get so politicized that we actually almost defaulted on our debt um, because one of the things that's done with the money when you borrow more money is pay back your massive indebtedness, right? Because the federal government of the United States is the most indebted institution in the world and in the history of the world. And when you owe, you know, nearly $30 trillion to the rest of the world, you spend a good amount of money paying that back, right? Um, but so this has been this political hot potato where it comes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the Republican Party has been particularly good at holding various Democratic uh, Party agendas hostage to these debates, right? But they're fairly disingenuous in the sense that I don't think anyone believes there's a deep desire to really do anything about this. It's just a way to beat each other up. But you need the government to pass a resolution to continue to spend. Right. right. So raising the U.S. debt ceiling is required for the government to continue to spend money, right? Yeah. And, and, and if it doesn't, um, if it's not raised, uh, people are saying that the entire of uh, President Biden's care economy agenda is build back better plan, et cetera. You could forget about it. But just finally, finally, um, there's nothing that gets um, people who have more money than the rest Sorry, of us upset that then. Yeah, I found okay, it. That, 78 then, times. We've raised this limit 78 times. 78 times. Yeah, 49 times is no debate. So, again, if you were cool with it the last 77 times, I'm a little suspicious if it's suddenly the most important moral issue in the world for you now, right? Absolutely. And and not to offer the, the kind of assistance uh, to people with paid family leave, the child extending the child tax credits, et cetera. But on the issue of, of taxes, just the, the final thing on that, because according to the Institute of Pop policy studies, the share of U.S. taxes paid by the top uh, 0.1%, 1% was just slightly higher in 2018 than in 1962, despite the more than tripling of their share of the nation's wealth. Meanwhile, the bottom 50% saw their share of U.S. wealth drop by more than half uh, during this same period. And what President Biden now, he wants to mobilize the IRS to ensure that tax laws are being uh, fairly enforce and that the rich pay their share, but also uh, just uh, taxing uh, the wealthy a, a bit more to help pay for this plan, because it's $3.5 trillion, uh, the money has to come from somewhere. Your final thoughts about this flap over taxes, uh, Max Wolf? Yeah. So I don't think this is about whether $28.5 trillion in government debt or $28.5 thousand billion is meaningfully different to people than $30 trillion. I find that not credible to the point that it's barely worth our, our time. What this is about is what are our priorities and how do we fund those priorities? I think that while it's fun to call Joe Biden's Build Back Better proposals, radical and super liberal, what I think it is, is an effort to keep us from having major social unrest. And so I think having left behind the bottom 60 to 80% of income earners with a racial and gender bias pattern that's disturbing and familiar, 
this is an effort to keep everybody at least plausibly believing we can go somewhere together and we can heal the wounds of the past, including Corona. My fear is more that if we don't pass a fairly inclusive effort to reduce inequality, we'll start to have the catastrophic failure of our social cohesion and democracy that we've started to see kind of bubble up around the edges, whether that's a resurgent recent crime rates in certain areas or the January 6th attempt to have a violent overthrow of the democratic election, which I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't tend to be comfortable thinking of as a minor event. Absolutely. Well, on that note, economist Max Wolf, we know you're extremely uh, busy. A lot of folks uh, want to talk with you. So we're glad that you were able to join us and break this down for us today. Max Wolf, thank you so much for joining Always us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And we're going to uh, wrap up our show now um, with a focus on what's happening with the $600 Golden State stimulus payments in California. A new petition has been launched asking Go California Governor Gavin Newsom that Social Security Disability Insurance and Social Security Administration recipients should benefit from the $600 uh, uh, stimulus payment if you would believe that they um, are not eligible right now. And uh, Governor Newsom announced a Golden State stimulus payment for more than 2.5 million taxpayers that have filed their 2020 taxes. This as well as recipients of Cal EITC and ITIN filers who make less than $75,000 and who have lived within the state of California for at least of the 2020 tax year. Let's go to a clip now from uh, KTLA about the California stimulus checks. Governor Gavin Newsom is signing some pretty big checks to get Californians back on their feet. Just take a look at this. It's about $12 billion that will go out in those stimulus checks. And this is the largest state tax rebate in American history. About two out of every three Californians will be getting these checks. Over $4 billion for small businesses, $5.2 billion in rent relief, and an additional $2 billion for overdue water and utility bills. The Golden State stimulus checks will provide $600 to California taxpayers who make up to $75,000 annually. Another newly signed measure will provide microgrants of up to $10,000 to small startup business. There is also the possibility of $500 in savings account checks to low-income parents for their children. Governor Gavin Newsom was in Los Angeles yesterday for a press conference alongside Mayor Eric Garcetti, also Council Member Kevin DeLeon. The governor showing off his latest legislation for rent protection. This will extend protection against eviction for three months until September 30th. 5.2 billion dollars set aside covering 100 percent of back rent for low-income tenants. Because I'm signing an historic budget. It's unprecedented not only in California history. This budget's unprecedented in American history. Those who have already applied for the rent relief under the old program, well, they will automatically be receiving 100 percent of the rent protection. 
All righty. So there you have it. I'd like to welcome our guest, uh, Sherelle Withers. Some of our longtime listeners may remember that name because she was a volunteer for many years with the Sojourner Truth team. We so appreciated her coming in very, very early in the morning and helping us out. And we really miss uh, miss you, uh, Sherelle. Sherelle is a community uh, campaigner. She actually testified before the United Nations Rapporteur on Poverty uh, when he was in town. And now she has a petition around this uh, Golden State stimulus payments. Uh, Sherelle Withers, welcome back to Sojourner Truth, this time as a guest. Good to hear you. Great. Yes, thank you for having me. Right. So, Sherelle, you started a petition um, around this Golden State uh, stimulus payment, the $600 stimulus payments. Why? What's wrong? Yeah, I I initially started the petition because I am an SSDI recipient, and I have been with uh, Change.org for a number of years, and I figured that it would be the best platform for me to, for my voice to be heard in regards to why SSDI recipients were not getting a Golden State stimulus check. So uh, that is the reason why I started the petition. Right. And of course, um, SSDI standing for Social Security Disability uh, Insurance. Now, while it's a good thing, Sherelle, that this uh, stimulus money is available to those who are eligible in California on top of the federal stimulus money and on top of the child tax credits uh, that uh, people are receiving. And by the way, on the child tax credits, I want to remind all of our listeners that if your income is too low and you have not been filing taxes, you are eligible for the child tax credit. But the deadline uh, for you to uh, file and apply is October the 15th. So you need to go on to the portal there, the non-filer portal to get the child tax credit. But back to uh, this, it does seem as though it's outrageous that people on disability insurance payments, limited income, are left out of this. Sherelle, are are they saying anything? Have you gotten any response to your petition? I mean, what are the reasons, if any, they're giving for this unconscionable uh, deletion of people on disability insurance and uh, Social Security admin recipients? Sherelle. Right. There is no, I I have not received any information of uh, or spoken to uh, anyone or been contacted by anybody from our state uh, government's office. Um, to date, I have received over uh, 1,700 signatures regarding this petition. Um, and, um, you know, the state stimulus plan, I, I, like I said before, I don't qualify for it because I don't pay into our state taxes. I know with the CARES Act, uh, the first uh, round of recovery payments, which was $1,200, um, I received, I know that the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, uh, which was a $600 payment I did receive, and then, of course, our President Biden's American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, which uh, dispersed $1,400 uh, for those who qualify. Um, and I can't understand, with our state having a $76 billion surplus, that why uh, SSDI and SSA recipients were excluded from this Golden State stimulus plan or this Golden State stimulus package. Um, I feel that it's, you know, 
SDI recipients and SSA recipients are more in need of this money uh, than anyone else. Uh, we live on a fixed income. Uh, many of us uh, only get between 800 and I would say $1,800 per month for Social Security disability insurance, which is just very little money to live off of when you have to pay your rent, you have to pay your gas, you have to pay your electricity, you have to buy groceries, which now, you know, I used to be able to get four bags of groceries, which I now get one and a half bags bag of groceries for what I used to pay for four bags of groceries. Um, and there has been no increase in Social Security disability insurance. And our state has just, you know, we have this, 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 this extensive surplus and, and we're being excluded from this, you know, Golden State Stimulus Plan. So that's just basically been my argument. I want our governor to know that we should be included in this plan. We are suffering. We have gone through COVID just like everybody else, and we should not be excluded from the Golden State Stimulus Plan 1 or 2. Right, and it does seem just uh, finally, um, we just have a, a minute or so, uh, Sherelle, that, you know, uh, the governor, Newsom, who, you know, just went through that recall and now has to get back to the issues really facing California. We know the homeless population just widely expanding um, across the state and $800 to $1,800 a month you know, anybody who knows anything about California knows that there's no way you could make it on that. So the idea then that people living on that level of income are excluded from the Golden State uh, stimulus to me just means that it's not really any genuine thought to trying to assist those with the least uh, to keep people housed as opposed to becoming unhoused. But uh, Sherelle Withers, want to thank you uh, for what you're doing with this and for people who want to support your petition what should they do they should go to www.change.org backslash california state stimulus that's www.change.org backslash california state stimulus Right, and Sherelle, we are also posting that information on the Sojourner Truth website. Thank you for your efforts, and thank you so very much for joining us today. Sherelle Withers. Thank you so much for having me. All righty. We are out of time. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank this, all of our guests today and our Sojourner Truth team, Kiana Williams, our audio engineer, our assistant producer, Romero Funes. If you like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1 800 7350230. Go online to PacificaRadioArchives.org. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and you all please remember to stay safe. Everything will be all right.